Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> For those who don't know, uh, you should be aware that the Virginia Cavaliers won the first football game in ACC in 600 days. It's a big deal where I'm from. <clears throat> but this is far more important. Uh, yeah, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be going through verses 7 through 14. Continuing our journey through the book of 1 John, we're now in chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. I'll read and pray, and then we'll, we'll launch into the text. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. And Father, I thank You for the precious words that we were able to just sing in that last song. Lord, the plea of Your people that You would continue to come and to dawn in our minds and in our hearts, that You would shine into our night, that You would remove every barrier, every obstacle in us that keeps us from walking closely with You, that pulls us away in a thousand different directions, Lord, that can simply put, always be characterized as walking in darkness. Pray that You would illumine our hearts and our minds, Lord, to see that You are supremely valuable. Joy is found in Your presence and in Your right hand alone and nowhere else. Everywhere else there are only counterfeit joys that cannot compare to You. So I pray that You would be with us in this time, that we would feel Your presence, that Your Word would be opened to all of us, and that we would hear from You and You alone. Do it for Your own namesake. In Christ's name, Amen. So my family is currently in the process of looking for a new home. We were we moved to downtown Raleigh. We're living a couple blocks from here, one of the duplexes here. We moved here because we wanted to be intentionally close to the city, and we didn't need a lot of space when we first moved here. That was three babies ago. 
So now we're looking for a little bit more space. And we still want to be intentional with where we live, but, you know, whenever you're deciding where you want to spend, perhaps for us, the next 10, 15, 20, even beyond that years, you realize that you also have some preferences that bear on the situation that may or may not be important. And, you know, your preferences as the husband may be right. Your wife's preferences may be wrong. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things, that's my wife back there. So I, can, I have to be a little bit more reserved in this service than I was the first service. Um, but one of the things that we've come to realize is some of the things that, you know, we would each prefer in a home are shaped by what we experienced and remember fondly from our own childhood. So one of the things that I would love to have in a home, if, it, if at all possible, is a basement. Just because growing up in the Northeast, if any of you are from the Northeast or Midwest, like all homes have basements out there. They say the soil down here is too hard or whatever. It's just y'all don't know how to, to really live down here. Um, but anyway, some of my fondest memories growing up were in the basement. And I remember in particular, my parents always loved to have people over from the church or for the neighborhood for different parties, get-togethers. And all the kids would always go down to the basement. And one of the things that we loved to do was just have this giant game of hide-and-go-seek while turning all the lights off. So pitch black, can't see anything, running full speed in the dark. <clears throat> I realize now... This probably wasn't the smartest decision. Um, I remember one of my friends, one time, he was running in the dark, and he heard this slam into a pole, turn all the lights on, he's like wailing, and you realize that he has this giant golf ball-sized knot on his forehead. To me, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Now, as a parent, I realize you can really get hurt. It's dangerous to play around in the dark, to not be able to see where you're going. There's a value in light that I appreciate now that I did not appreciate then. When you have light, you're able to see where you're going. You're able to see where you're walking. You don't, make the, you don't stumble over things. You don't hurt yourself when you're able to see where you're going. And this contrast of light and darkness is one of the, the central themes that we find in all of scriptures, but particularly in John's writings. He loves, in, in both this book and in the Gospel of John, this constant contrast between walking in the light being a way of, of describing walking in the revelation of who God is, walking in closeness with Him, um, experiencing this, the depth of communion and fellowship with God, versus walking as enemies of God, walking in darkness, hurting yourself, hurting others ultimately. And in his, in his gospel, he tells us that the purpose of writing the book of John, he says at the end of the book, in, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written, this book, this gospel that I've written, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, I've written the gospel so that you all will become believers. When you see this one who he, he describes as the one in whom life itself exists, and that life came into the world to cast light for all those who are, who are enveloped in this dark world, that one who came into the world to offer himself as life for them, he says, I've written this book so that you may come to believe in him. He states in the, in the book of 1 John, the book that we're in now, his purpose for writing this book, which is slightly different. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you, this book, 
to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The Gospel of John, he wrote so that people would read and become believers. And he says, this book now, 1 John, I'm writing so that you who are believers or who, who claim to be believers can, by my words, evaluate and examine your own life and assess whether or not you truly do have eternal life, a relationship with God. And at the center of this book is a constant contrast between what it means for a believer to walk in light and to walk in darkness. He gives a series of tests by which we can use to, to examine our lives. And the past couple of weeks, what we've looked at is this first general category of tests, which have to deal with, with purity, with walking and, and confessing sin and admitting sin, and yet not embracing sin as a, as a habitual lifestyle, that your life is marked by constantly trying to turn away from sin towards God and towards His will. He begins the second category today. And to summarize it, the second test is this. That to walk in the light is to walk in love. To walk in light means towards other people, it means to walk in love. Text breaks down into three basic sections. The first one is walking. He describes what it means to walk in the light in verses 7 through 8. Second, he describes what it means to walk in darkness, verses 9 through 11. And then finally, he offers uh, a word of encouragement for those who are striving to walk in the light, verses 12 through 14. So walking in the light, walking in the darkness, encouragement for those who are walking in the light. Let's look at verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And when he says, beloved, the, the apostles, if you read the New Testament uh, often, you'll see that they constantly love this word, love to use this word to address their readers. Oh, you whom I love, you beloved ones. And typically it's, it's at a point, it's at a juncture in the writer's argument where he may be describing things that are just glorious truths that Christ has imparted to His people through what He has done on the cross. And He wants to transition now into what this ought to look like in our lives in terms of a response, in terms of action. And so say, Beloved, based on this, act in this way. Or if He's saying something that's difficult to understand, perhaps a really complex and in-depth thought, or His language is somewhat convoluted, He'll transition into stating it more simply or summarizing what he's saying. And he'll say, Beloved, this is what I mean. In this verse 7, he's simplifying, he's, he's trying to, to condense what he's just been saying in the beginning of chapter 2 and, and into chapter 1. If you're reading this, this, if you've read this book up until this point, you may say these are the things that are kind of difficult to understand. He's talking about walking in light, walking in darkness. It, he, it seems like he's addressing the potential question that his readers may have of, John, are you sort of like making these things up? Is this, are, are you inventing some new way of communicating or, or just something? You can tell that he's anticipating that by what he says. He says, I'm not writing you a new commandment. This is nothing new. What I'm telling you is what God has commanded of His people from the beginning. The question is, from the beginning of what? 
when he says, this is the commandment that you've had from the beginning. Many people would say that what he, John has in mind here is from the time that they first became believers, from the beginning of their walk in the Christian faith. And it, it certainly seems that that's part of what he has in mind here, but it's also interesting that when he says from the beginning, it's the same construction that he used at the beginning of this letter when he's zooming out to describe the one who was from the beginning that we have seen and heard and, and felt and beheld His glory, the one who is from the beginning, God Himself. So the question is, is He saying that this has been the commandment ever since you became a believer, that you ought to love and walk in this manner of walking in the light? Or is He going even further back? Is He saying, this is how it has been from the beginning of the universe? God Himself is love. And the scriptures teach that He created the universe, that it would be an overflow of, of His abundant love and joy, and that it would be a reflection of His will. So everything in the, in, in the universe, if you would go back to Genesis 1, one of the things you, you see as a common refrain is the, is the repeated phrase, and it was good. God created light, and it was good. God created the sky, separating water from water, and it was good. God called forth the dry land out of the water and caused the vegetation to grow and fruit-bearing trees and, and plants. And they were all very good. Animals, humans, it was all good. That repeated refrain is, is a way of emphasizing the fact that this is all in harmony with God, who is Himself good. He is Himself love. And what John is saying is that this has been the operating principle from the beginning. I'm not writing anything new here. This is the way that it has always been. And yet, in typical John faction, it seems like he contradicts himself in the next statement. So he says, this isn't old, okay? At the same time, it is, I mean, it's not new, but at the same time, it is new, I guess. I guess you could say it was new. <laughs> He goes in verse 8, he says, At the same time it is new. A new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and true in you. So the question is, is he just contradicting himself? I mean, how can this, this command to love in such a way be an old commandment and yet a new commandment? Is he contradicting himself? Or does he mean that in one sense it is old? It's the way that... that we have always been commanded to live, that the universe has been designed to run. But in a different sense, it is new. And in, in what sense is that? In degree. The standard to which we are called to live and to love has been amplified since the one who is light himself came into the world. When Jesus came into the world, He gave an entirely new, amplified meaning to what it means to love. You may break it down to, to three basic ways in which Jesus has elevated our understanding of what it means to love. You may say that He, uh, that he created a deeper and fuller meaning of love just on emphasis, number one. Number two, quality. And three, extent at which we are to love. So, first, emphasis. In this time, there were so many, if you were to go back and read 
how many of you have tried to read through the Bible and normally get tripped up around Exodus, Leviticus, like pretty early on in the beginning, once you get into all the commands and all the statutes, etc. There were so many commands in the scriptures that you can imagine that, that some of the people in this time, when they saw Jesus teaching so simply and just living so extraordinarily, that they, they came to him and say, okay, how do we simplify all of this stuff that we are called to do? A disciple came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? You've probably heard it before. Jesus said very simply, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all of the law and all of the prophets hang. This is the way to summarize all that I have commanded you to do. If you would consume yourself with this endeavor, with pressing into God, with loving Him with all your being, and pressing yourself into the lives of others, of your neighbors around you, then you will have done all that I have commanded you to do. Jesus helped to simplify and just emphasize that love is at the center of all that we are called to do. Secondly, quality. Jesus gave a whole new depth of degree of, of, of what it means and what it really looks like to love. One of my favorite examples is found in, in the Gospels, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. Um, he's, he's, he's teaching in the midst of thousands of people. Most famous preacher in Palestine at this time. And yet after his sermon is done, he descends down the hill and he's approached by this grotesque man. This man who was a leper. If you've ever seen someone who's afflicted with leprosy, it's, it's a, a disease that causes your skin to just break out in boils and blisters and just pus and they s- smell pretty awful and... These were the people that were just unseemly, you couldn't touch, they were unclean, they were outcasts in society. You can imagine this, as this person drew near to Jesus, the crowds parting to get away from him. And yet this man summons the courage to come to Jesus and ask him, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. It says that Jesus has compassion on him. And you can just read through, through the account. You can see Jesus looking at this man. And Jesus lays his hand on him and touches him. And says, I am willing. Be clean. That would have been completely shocking to the people of that day. Just how compelled Jesus was by his love for others that all of the things that we spend so much time using to to isolate ourselves from from other people Jesus Jesus pressed right through that placed his hands on this grotesque man had compassion on him loved him said I am willing to be clean he created a whole new degree depth of what it means to love 
Thirdly, extent. He broadened the extent at which we are commanded to love. People had a very narrow focus on who their neighbor was and was not, who they were obligated to love. And Jesus tells uh, a parable of, of a Samaritan, and the point of the parable ultimately is that whoever is around you is your neighbor. There is no such thing as a legitimate dividing wall between you and another, between whites and blacks, or between whatever economic class you come from. The impetus of the gospel is to freely cast love on all who are around you, proclaiming the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, and entering into the lives of others, no matter how messy, no matter how different, and proclaiming God's truth and embodying it in the way that we live. Jesus modeled that. So in all these ways, when John says that this is a new commandment to a certain extent, what he means is that Jesus has raised the bar. We understand what it looks like now. Those who walk in light, walk in the light of Christ, those who have truly come to know Him, are those who are marked by a constant pressing in, although imperfect, constant pressing into the will and good pleasure of God, of, of emulating Christ in the way that He walked. He says that the darkness in those people, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. At that time, Jews had a clear, basic division in their mind of human history. There's the current age, the way things are now and will continue to be until God, in the new age, rectifies all things, eliminates wickedness, eliminates sin, restores uh, the effects of the curse, and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, and God is reigning with His people. There's the current age, and then later there will be the future age. But what the New Testament teaches us is that when Jesus came, He brought the new age into the now. That where He is living and reigning in the hearts of His people, He is bringing in the effects of the new created order into their hearts and into their lives now. We are able to taste some of the delicacies and the delights of the coming age now. We don't have to wait. He offers relationship and fellowship with Him now. That's why John says that it's not as if this age is completely dark and that age will be completely light. But to those who are walking with God, the darkness is currently, presently, in process of passing away. And the light is already shining to those who belong to Him. He shifts gears in verses 9-11 through 11 to begin to describe the contrast. By contrast, he says, whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, what does he mean to hate? There's, of course, the straightforward meaning, which is definitely in view here, that believers, if you are harboring, harboring resentment, animosity, bitterness towards other people who have been called by God as children, as heirs, and you refuse to reconcile with them, that's walking in hatred, which means you are walking in darkness, which, John says, may be evidence that you don't truly belong to Him. 
if the light is shining, it is constantly working to permeate through that hardened exterior of the heart and cause forgiveness and kindness and mercy to well up out of the heart. Gradually, yes, but it is a process that ought to be happening. And even even beyond that, again, getting back to the standard of Jesus raising the standard at which we are called to love, it's likely that in John's mind, he also has uh, some of the times in Jesus' earthly ministry when, for instance, in, in Luke chapter 14, when Jesus said, he spoke of those who, who love him versus those who hate him. And he said in verse 26 of chapter 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does that mean? If you're new to Christianity or just new to the church, like that's a, that should be a big red flag. If all you heard is that Jesus is love and compassion, this ought to stand out. What does he mean? That we're supposed to hate our own father and mother, etc., if we're to follow him? Throughout the Bible, a contrast between love and hate is also used just to describe how great the distance is between one love and another love. That the higher love is so great and so high that by comparison it makes the lesser love look like hate. So when he says you are to hate father, whoever does not hate father and mother, etc., in order to follow me, he's not worthy of me, he's saying... That I am the one who has created you, who has redeemed you, your life. I am the one who gives you your life, your source of joy. I am to be everything to you. Your satisfaction, your, your greatest source of comfort. I am everything to you. And by comparison, the way in which you love your familial, your, 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 your family and your friends, etc. in this life is nothing compared to the way in which you are called to love and follow me. So bringing that definition also into what John is saying here, when he says whoever hates his brother is still in darkness, he's not only just saying the obvious holding resentment and bitterness, etc., but he's saying that if you aren't pressing into this, this higher standard that Jesus has called us to emulate him in the way in which we lay our lives down for one another, examine that that may be walking in hatred as he's defining it. So, for example, if you're familiar with, um, with, with the New Testament, with the Gospels, you remember the account when Jesus says, he's talking about the future time when he'll separate between sheep and goats, those who were believers and those who are not believers. And one of the indictments that he has on those who are not believers is that during their life, they did not visit other believers who were naked, needing clothing, or who were in prison, needing provisions, needing to be visited. He said, I was in prison and you did not visit me. What he meant was, in that time, if you went to jail, particularly for being a a believer, and, and, and you were thrown in jail for your proclamation of faith, in that time, if you were in jail, you were not provided with clothing, you were not provided with food, you were not provided for any of the basic necessities of life by the people who, who guarded the jail. And unless someone from the outside, someone that you knew, someone that was your friend, brought those items into the jail to, to you, you would die. 
The problem is, if someone brings those provisions to you and you're in jail for being a proclaimer of the gospel, that person is likely also going to be identified as a follower of Christ as well. And so that person who who volunteers to bring you those provisions is doing so knowing that it may cost him his life in order to extend love to you, to care for you. He may be endangering his own life. That's the context where Jesus says, I was, I was in prison. Some of those people who belonged to me, my children, were in prison. And you did not risk your life to go see them. That's how I know you, weren't, you didn't truly come to know me. It's a high, high standard of love that we are called to. To be so compelled, to be so convinced that this life is not what we're living for, but the life that is beyond this. To be in fellowship with God. To agree with Paul that to be absent from the flesh, to be present with God is better by far. There's nothing in this life that can compare to that. To actually embody that in the way in which we approach our neighbors and love our neighbors. It's a high calling. Yet we are called to continually be growing towards that. Now, it's important always to keep these type of commands in context to you know, the whole book where he says, no one is doing these things perfectly. If anyone says that he's not sinning, he's a liar, the truth is not in him. Obviously, we fall and we fail in these areas. Yet we have an advocate with the Father who is constantly ready to forgive us, to redeem us, to call us back to the task, to continue to help us to grow in these areas. Yet if someone is persisting and walking in darkness and hatred towards their brother, he says that person is still in darkness. And in verses 10 and 11, he's just repeating what he's already said, just to drive home the point. He's saying, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Again, if you would just consume yourself, if we would just consume ourselves with with loving God, with all of who we are, and loving those around us with all of who we are, we wouldn't stumble over sin. There'd be no opportunity to sin. But, he says, whoever hates his brother, again, is in the darkness does not know God, does not truly belong to Him, and walks in the darkness and does not know where He is going. Now, interesting here is when he says, does not know where He is going, the word going there actually means more specifically to be going away, to be departing. So what he's saying is that person doesn't really know where he is going away to, where he is departing, where he is on his way Away to. It comes into focus when you look at, again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Where he's describing the narrow way which describes the life of believers. Those who are following him and are trusting in him. And the broad way, the myriad of ways in which one can live that are all... Um, characterized by being hostile and ultimately enemies of God, the Broadway, and he ultimately says, Jesus does at the end of that section, those who persist in walking in the broad way, there will come a day when there will be a reckoning. And to those people I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart into utter darkness for the rest of eternity. 
It's the same word. When he says, be gone away from me, away from my presence, depart. So it seems like what John is saying here is that those who persist in this manner of life, if you refuse to yield to Christ and to walk in this way of love towards one another, you don't realize where you are departing to, where you are already on your way to, if you refuse to repent and to turn and to trust and to walk in obedience. That's the, the, the solemn statement that's being made here. And the tragedy is that that person doesn't even know it. They are blind. They cannot see the colors, the intricate beauties of the way of God, no more so than someone who was blind could see the patterns of, of light. They are blind to it. It's a solemn word that John is offering here. That those who belong to Christ, they will walk in the light as He is in the light, which is, means in this instance to be constantly growing in their love for one another, for God and for one another. Lastly, he offers a word of encouragement in verses 12 to 14 for those who are walking in the light. He basically addresses three different categories of people twice. So he refers to children, to fathers, and to young men. And then again refers to children and fathers and young men. And what's in view here are not uh, physical distinctions like young people and old people and people that are in the middle age gap. He's making spiritual distinctions here. Throughout the New Testament... A young child is one who is new to the faith. They are a babe in the faith. They are new to Christianity. They've just placed their faith in Christ. They are extremely raw and immature. Fathers here, he's he's explaining, he's referring to those who have walked for a long, long season with Christ, who have walked with Him over years, who are in deep communion with God. And then young men are describing... Those who are in the middle, they're not new believers, they haven't walked for an extremely long time, but they're engaged right in the middle of this spiritual warfare. It particularly is, is, is used in sort of a, a, a military uh, type context, because throughout the Bible, young men are those who have energy and strength and are able to go to war and to fight. So he's particularly addressing those who are in the midst of spiritual conflict. And it's interesting, just the way in which he's crafted this section. We'll try to, try to be brief, because he's doing a couple things in this section. So we'll address this each, each category of people. First, he makes two statements about children. In the beginning of verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Then at the end of 13, he again says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. What's interesting here is that he actually uses two different words for children in these two instances. The first comes from a word, from the verb, meaning to give birth to, to bear children. Um, These are the ones who have been given birth to. That's the word, the meaning of the word. And so what's emphasized in using that word is just the intimate relationship that a child has with the father, as one uh, child has with the parent, uh, being born by that parent. In the second instance... 
the word comes from uh, the verb meaning to, to train or to discipline. And so what's emphasized in using that word is one who is subordinated to another, who is under the instruction of another, being trained up by another. The reason it's interesting is because what follows these two words in each case almost seems like he ought to have reversed them. Here's what I mean. If in the, fir- in the first word, what's emphasized is the fact that you, you have this intimate relationship to the parents. You are those who have been given birth to. And he says to them, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In other words, he's affirming, yes, you have this intimate relationship with, with your father. But remember that he saved you, yes, for his name's sake. In other words, he's emphasizing you belong to him. He is your authority. In the second example, stay with me. He's saying those who acknowledge that you you belong, that you're being trained and you're under the authority of another person, remind yourself, remember, you know the Father. He is your Father. It seems like wherever a new believer would place themselves, he's reminding them of the opposite, essentially. Those who focus on the fact that they have this new intimate relationship with God and I belong to Him and I'm His child. He's saying, yes, that's true, but remember that your Father is in heaven. He saved you for His name's sake. Those in the other category that may be perhaps even beaten down with, with overemphasizing the fact that He is my Master, He is my Lord, He is the one that gives me the commandments that I am to live by. John is saying, yes, those things are true, but remember that He is your Father. You know Him. You have an intimate relationship with Him. He is your Father. So He encourages new believers. Secondly, He moves on to the fathers. That is, those who have walked with the Lord for quite some time. What's interesting here is that it's similar to what He says about children in that they know God... But he uses a different term to describe God. He says of the children, you know the father. He says to the fathers, you know the one who is from the beginning. Why in one instance does he refer to the father and in the second instance refer to the one who is from the beginning? An example might help. A child knows who their father is. They could point their father out of a lineup. But there's so much that a child does not understand of his father, of their father, until they grow older, until they are able to understand more of the world, etc., around them, understand more of their father's history, understand more of the things that their father kept from them when they were a child that they were not able to understand or process or bear when they were younger. And yet, as they become older, they understand more of who their father is. It seems like John is writing to the children. You know the Father. He's your daddy. And yet those who have walked for a number of years with the Father, He's reminding them, you know the one who is from the beginning. The one who has no beginning. He's he's diving into deeper theological waters that those who have walked with the Lord for some time become more and more sensitive to, become more and more aware of. It's one of the ways in which the worldview of a Christian is diametrically 
opposed to the worldview that exists out in our world. We live in a world that is obsessed with staying young, with staying infantile in our thinking, of pursuing all the things that young people pursue, of being terrified of death, of growing older, etc. Yet the Bible holds forth growing in age as one of the great things to look forward to, primarily because if we're walking with the Lord, we are continuing to go further and further out to sea, so to speak, and experiencing this infinitely beautiful, wonderful God. A journey that will continue for all of eternity, understanding more and more of who this infinite being is. And it is the greatest passion that you can aspire to. That's what he's reminding these fathers of, John is. You know the one who is not only your father, but this one that you have come to know is from the beginning. Lastly, his third category is to the young men. Again, what's not in view here is necessarily age, but just a distinction between those who are brand new believers and those who have walked with the Lord for a long time. It's those, what's in view is those who are, are past sort of the honeymoon stage of becoming a believer and now they're really engaged in the, the daily life of walking with the Lord, of struggling to walk with the Lord. They're engaged now in, in the daily uh, pursuit that is, that is new to them of having their minds now conformed to the will of God that where their minds had been conformed to sinful habits and ways of thinking and patterns of life for so long, they're now engaged in that spiritual battle of reorienting themselves towards the will of God. And so those young people who are engaged in this spiritual warfare, who are now in in the thick of it, so to speak, notice his word of encouragement to them. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He knows they may be tempted to grow to fall into despair in the midst of this battle. Perhaps they're struggling with whatever sinful vice that keeps them at bay, that it seems like an impossible hurdle to overcome. And he uses this opportunity to remind those people that the battle has already been won. You have already overcome the evil one. There are ways in which you see defeat, yes, in your life now. But ultimately the verdict has been decided. And to reiterate what he had said earlier, you are still one of those in whom darkness is gradually passing away. It may seem like a slow process, but God is working. The scriptures tell us, the work that he began, he will complete it. So wherever you are today, just in your spiritual journey, if you're, if you're new to, to Christianity, these things are new to you, or just wherever you may be, there's something that addresses where you are right now in this text. Are you walking in a pattern of hatred? Of, of refusing to be reconciled to your brothers, of being reconciled to those around you, of walking in love in the way in which Christ has loved. And John would say that you are in darkness, and you don't know where you're going to right now, but 
the offer of salvation is still extended freely to you. Come to Him. And those of you who are walking in the light, wherever you are, there's a word of encouragement here that ultimately says continue to press into Him. Continue to walk in the light. You have been forgiven, new believers. You have already overcome, young people. Those of you who have been walking for quite some time with the Lord, you know the one who is from the beginning. And you will continue to grow in that knowledge of Him. Let's pray and thank God. Father, I thank you for just the way in which your word leaves no stone unturned in our life. It leaves no place for us to hide from you. Wherever we are, Lord, there is a word that speaks directly to us. That is as if you have singled us out in a crowd and have spoken directly to us and beckoned us to come to you. Lord, either to turn away from the path that we are pursuing that is one that leads us far away from you, that causes us to drift away from you, or if we are pursuing you, you, Lord, as an excited father does a child, you tell us to continue to run, that you encourage us, that you cheer us on, that you open your arms wide to us and welcome us into your presence. Lord, I pray that you would continue the work that only you can do of assessing where all of our hearts are and working life where there is death and working light where there is darkness. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that we would be among those in whom the darkness is gradually fading away. In the new age where you will reign unrivaled when all wrongs will be righted where all scars that we have endured in this life will be forgotten where all tears will be wiped away and only the glory of Christ will shine and fill the cosmos and will be sufficient for the light of all of the universe. I thank you that we can taste that now. And I pray that you would just give us more and more each day and that you would prove yourself to be supremely valuable, to be our ultimate pursuit. Do it for your own namesake. In Jesus' name. Amen.